Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. When you wake up in the morning and check your phone, does it feel like this or like this? Because with Shopify, your morning can feel like this way more often. That's the sound of a sale being made on your new Shopify store. And while client payments may require weeks or months of work, you can start generating a semi-passive income to grow your business by setting up a Shopify store all of your own. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your latest designs on shirts or bags or adding something totally different to your business, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. You can sell online, you can sell in person, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. With Shopify, you can set up your store in minutes and start selling immediately. And Shopify's award-winning support is there to help you as you go. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash freelance. That's all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash freelance to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash freelance or click the link in our show description and start waking up to this. I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for Freelance to Founder. You don't go out on your own because you want to have a, a miserable time working with people that you don't enjoy. You go out on your own because you want to work with people that energize you and inspire you. Right. And most importantly, allow you to do your best work. Because what happens out in the world when you're doing your best work? Two things. Number one, people are talking about your best work which is the best marketing in the world. And number two, you love almost every minute of the work you do. Once again, this is Freelance to Founder and oh, have I got a treat for you today. This is the podcast where I talk to entrepreneurs exactly like today's guest, Michael Port. They're service providers, marketing agency owners, online course builders, bloggers, product creators, software developers, even other podcasters. And what makes my guests unique, like Michael, is that today's successful company wasn't plan A, or maybe even plan B or C. But once they embraced the possibilities, their project or fledgling company ultimately took on a whole new life and scaled far beyond their expectations, even their own dreams, and therefore much bigger than themselves. Nearly 15 years ago, I read a groundbreaking book on business development called Book Yourself Solid. It was written by Michael Port, a former actor and now a business builder. He had a way about him in the audio I listened to and the video I watched that told me he was a consummate professional. Book Yourself Solid has seen numerous revisions since then, and it led to the formation of Heroic Public Speaking just a short time later. Heroic Public Speaking is a transformational workshop program that teaches people how to communicate far more effectively. And this is not your run-of-the-mill Udemy video series on presentations. This is a whole other level. He presents and works with large corporations to teach their very best leaders on how to present, how to communicate. Now, I chose the word transformational for a reason. The attention to detail in his workshops is 
astounding. His products and training services have generated millions in revenue, and yet teaching people how to communicate was never the plan. In this episode, you're going to get to know Michael really well. You'll hear about his early life and how it played into what he does for a living now. You'll hear how and why he pivoted from acting. You'll hear how he found his first clients when he did break out on his own as a trainer and a teacher. And I don't mind telling you, you're going to get numerous insights on communication and public speaking strewn throughout the interview. That's your bonus. Why? It's because I couldn't resist talking about the craft itself with Michael, and I wanted you to learn from him in a bite-sized way. So now, after a brief excerpt from one of Michael's YouTube videos, I bring you my conversation with Michael Port. The first bullet point in an article on how to be a better public speaker generally tells you to tell stories, but it doesn't generally tell you how to tell better stories. Because just telling stories, unless they're effective and actually move people to think differently or feel differently or act differently, it's not so productive. So I'm going to give you a structure, a framework for telling stories that you can use for virtually any story that you tell. I didn't make up the structure, Aristotle did. So this has been around for a long, long time. In fact, the movies you watch, the plays you watch, the TV shows you watch, uh, most of them adhere to this structure. And it's called a three-act structure. Act one is the exposition. Michael Port, it is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me on Freelance the Founder. It's my pleasure. Great to, great to have you. It's, you. You're somebody that's been on my mind for quite some time because I feel like your story is the quintessential freelance, I'm using air quotes on that, <laughs> to founder's story where you had a plan A and ultimately arrive at a plan B that has been fruitful and fulfilling by all accounts externally that I can see. And so I'm looking forward to hearing your story personally from straight from your mouth. Well, thank you so much. Although I might say I had a plan A, B, C, D, <laughs> E. <laughs> I could go on. As, as many do, I think. As many do, they discover that maybe I should pivot here. Maybe I should pivot here. They're, the crossroads is not quite as uh, perpendicular as maybe uh, some people think. There's, it's multi-pronged. It's more like a roundabout with, <laughs> with numerous exits, right? It is. You know, it's often uh, difficult to see out into the future. I mean, Winston Churchill said that it's a mistake to look too far ahead. Only one link in the chain of destiny can be handled at a time. And I love that quote because, you know, sometimes uh, we're, we have this idea of this, of this destination, you know, way out into the future. And that destination, it means success. Uh, and, and I, I've never found uh, a lot of power in that. Uh, for me, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so interested in, in, in what we're doing right now that I can't tell you exactly what I'm going to be interested in in 10 years. Could be completely different. I know uh, Jason Freed from the, the company called Basecamp up in Chicago has mm -hmm. often said that companies that have a five-year strategic plan are fooling themselves. A plan is really a guess about where you're actually going to go. Yeah. And it's silly to spend a, an inordinate amount of time meticulously planning where your 12th step is going to be three years yeah. to five years from now. It's, it's a fantasy, right? At, yeah. At this point, uh, we do one-year planning and then quarterly planning uh, because we are like a startup, even though I've been doing this kind of work since 2003. Uh, in 2014, we made another big pivot in the business 
Uh, and uh, now we have 15 full-time employees plus contractors. And the, the energy of the organization feels very much like a startup, which is very different than uh, running a practice, uh, even if you have a couple people helping you. Uh, so being a service professional running a practice is very different than running a business uh, that you're trying to scale over time. Uh, just It's just been so fascinating to move through all of these different stages of business development. And one isn't better than another. They're just different. Right. I, so when so let's talk about the business. <laughs> let's let's level set for people who may not know who Michael Port is. Um, when they when they Google the name Michael Port, they're going to find uh, what what many think people think of the business of today, which is heroic public speaking. My first experience with you was the book book um, book yourself solid uh, several years ago. Um, what can you tell us about the nature of the business today? Even if you want to provide any clarity on details on, on the status of the business of heroic public speaking and all of the pieces of that puzzle. Yeah, sure. It's pretty straightforward. We have two different divisions at heroic public speaking. We have a corporate division, uh, where our trainers go into corporations. We have very, very large clients like Disney, uh, Best Buy, uh, Guardian, etc. And uh, we focus on presentation skills, pitching skills, and communication skills uh, for those corporations. And then we have a consumer division. And most of the individuals who come to us uh, to work on their public speaking come here to Heroic Public Speaking HQ in Lambertville, New Jersey. We have 10,000 square feet and a theater and rehearsal rooms. It's a pretty incredible place that we built from the ground up. And as far as we know, there's nothing like it in the world for this kind of work. And the individuals who come work with us are either already professional speakers or they want to be professional speakers or they use speaking to promote their business, advance their brand. Uh, so many, many entrepreneurs find that using public speaking uh, is one of the most effective ways uh, to leverage uh, you know, uh, their, their credibility uh, and uh, and promote the business. So uh, they're usually a little bit more serious about becoming best in class public speakers uh, than say you know somebody who just said, "Well, listen, I got to give a ten minute presentation next week at at work." Uh, and they come here for uh, more comprehensive training programs. So and in 2014, we made, my wife and I, who's my business partner, made the switch. Uh, to focusing entirely on communication and public speaking, but the first decade. Uh, of my career was really focused, well, not my career career, but of this iteration of my career was focused on the Book Yourself Solid IP. That's the first book I wrote in two, I wrote it in 2005. And it was for the individual service professional, for the freelancer. And it was all about how to book more business. And uh, that book, I don't know exactly why, I still really don't. I mean, I, I, I have an idea, but that book hit big, fast, uh, and hard. And, uh, and I, so I felt very, very fortunate uh, to get to do that work for a long period of time. And now uh, Matthew Kimberly runs the Book Yourself Solid uh, business. And uh, we license that IP to other consultants to use uh, so that they can train people in the Book Yourself Solid system. And my focus is as CEO of Heroic Public Speaking, and I run uh, this company. So Heroic Public Speaking, I feel um, a though I have not been through the program myself, a personal kinship uh, for because it was about 
18 to 20 years ago that I went through a public speaking course through Franklin Covey uh, yeah. back in the day. And I did it as a um, early career uh, professional. Uh, I was like a sales manager and a and, uh, large company. And uh, I'm an introvert by nature. And the, so the idea of presenting myself in a confident manner was foreign to me. How to do that, uh, mannerisms, not just what I say and, and making sure that I have my message down and, and I'm able to connect with people and so forth, but even just my mannerisms. Um, especially as an as a introvert, I, I'd be always self-conscious about how I'm coming across to people. And I I feel strongly that every human being would, would, would uh, benefit from a public speaking class. It does not matter what you do for a living. But my question about the, today's business is, do you find it to be as fully appreciated in all circles, maybe as it was 15 years ago, when less of our communications were textual? You know, there were less uh, digital communications. They were, they were absolutely more face-to-face and in front of groups and so forth. How has, that, how has that shaped how you teach and how you even frame the business offering itself? Or has it? Yeah, it has. Uh, Actually, I think that what we're seeing, at least anecdotally, is more interest in more comprehensive training because people now realize that the most effective way to make a connection with another human being uh, is by being in the room with them because the connections that we have online can be so tenuous. You know, they're, they're, they're often fleeting and we might feel like we know somebody, but we may not really know them. But when, when we're on a stage or, you know, uh, uh, on a platform of any kind or on the floor and people are uh, sitting and, and, uh, and experiencing what we have to offer, the kind of connection that we can make is really pretty extraordinary. And so because what, because our expectations continue to rise with respect to our appreciation of entertainment, people realize that, oh, wow, I, not only do I need to have an extraordinary educational narrative, but I also need to include theatrical elements to create an experience for people. You know, I'd say 15 years ago, people thought, well, you know, I just can go out there and just kind of talk about what I know, and that's enough. But what we're seeing now, because it, because online, we're constantly watching video, we're constantly seeing people make really extraordinary product, the expectations are transferring to the room as well. And so you know, the competition is actually getting steeper on the professional side because people are bringing so much more theatricality to those experiences. And as a result, uh, people go, oh, uh, you know what? Uh, If I want to be best in class, I better get to it. And so that I love. I love seeing that. I love seeing a deeper commitment and a deeper connection uh, to uh, creating experiences for audiences. That's a really interesting observation because that's not just an observation about what we need to do as communicators. It directly impacts how you package heroic public speaking's offering to people to attract them. That you are not just teaching stage skills. You are teaching communication skills 
and that involves more than what comes out of your mouth and what you prepare to come out of your mouth. That can that that entails the entire package of the presentation or the conversation, the interaction with other people. You've watched that change over the years. That tells me you're an extremely observant person, not just as a business person who is trying to to you know create an offering that is valuable to large corporations, but you're also doing it as a person who understands presentations or communications as a craft. Um, I'm sure many people know your past background, your early career, but maybe not everybody does. So we're going to go there in just in just a minute. But as as it relates to heroic public speaking, how about how about how people communicate in less theatrical manner? Um, you know, in bite sized uh, bits and pieces here and there. How does public speaking help a person? Um, shape their message, even if their message is going to be delivered in bite-sized bits. Does that make sure. sense? What my question yeah, is? Of course it does. And so let me make sure that I'm crystal clear about uh, what I mean when I, when I use the term theatric, theatrically. Because sometimes people might think that uh, I just mean animated and large and big and broad. Good point. And that's not necessarily... Uh, what I mean when I say theatrically. Right. So theatrical elements are the elements that keep people paying attention. And so, yes, it can be broad comedy. Certainly, if you are a brilliant musician, bringing some you know, music into a presentation is, of course, theatrical and people will be interested. But this, the just telling a story in a way that keeps people on the edge of their seat is theatrical. And so the reason that what we do with the people we serve transfers far beyond the stage is because we're playing roles all day long. We're playing different roles all day long. And you know, some people, I think, recognize that this is the case. Others may not have thought much about it. Right. But if you do think about it, you may say, you know what? You're right. I do play a slightly different role at the office than I do with my wife. I play a slightly different role with, with my child, who is my biological child, than I do with my child, who is my, uh, is a, is my child through a second marriage. Now, you might love the children uh, both uh, completely, but you may have a slightly different role with each one of them. And so many experiences that we uh, are involved in are manufactured. So if you if you think about just giving a speech, that, that's a very manufactured environment. People are sitting in chairs and say it's 45 minutes and the environment is designed so that you get to speak and they can speak if you let them speak. Well, that's a very manufactured environment. And people say, okay, I understand what the rules are. And most people will, will adhere to those rules or, or those constraints. When you are in an interview for a job, that is a manufactured environment. They are quizzing you, trying to see if they can uncover your strengths, your weaknesses, your character, et cetera. When you are pitching an idea to a venture capitalist, that's a manufactured environment. And you, if you understand what is my role in this particular situation, then you can lean into that role, uh, identify your objectives, and then figure out how you're going to tactically achieve those objectives. And so what we want to do is we want to bring our ability 
to perform to all of those different roles so that we play the right role in the right situation. And so you can, the simplest thing to do is to be able to identify your objective in any situation that you're in. So you're not going in blind. What is my objective? Number one. Now, if you know your objective, so you can call that your super objective, and then you can determine, all right, what are my sub objectives? You know, what, what do I have to achieve in order to reach that super objective? And then how am I going to do it? So we do that naturally as human beings. Even when you go to a Starbucks and you want to get a coffee, a cup of coffee, you want to get it made correctly. You want to get it made quickly uh, and you want to be treated nicely uh, by whoever is making it. So you behave in a way that will get you those results. Now, if you can't control your emotions, if you can't control your behavior, then you're going to get into a lot of conflict in life. If you're, you know, feeling like you're in a bad mood and you take it out on the barista at Starbucks, well, you're maybe not going to get your coffee made exactly the way you want it, as fast as you want it. Maybe they'll write the wrong name on the coffee cup. But if we can manage our behavior, then we're performing. And hopefully we're doing it for good rather than for evil. Uh, but we are by nature performers, all of us. And I don't know that people always appreciate that. <laughs> Which look, we, not everybody likes it. I mean, sometimes people will push back on me, like, no, I'm not a performer. I'm not a that's comedian. Right. Right? So that that's another one I find really interesting because sometimes you know people think of uh, think, if if you call somebody a chameleon, th then maybe that's an insult. Like they change their colors. Well, is a chameleon? actually inauthentic or are they authentic? Because when a chameleon is on a green leaf, it turns green. It's not pretending to turn green. It is in fact green. Now, when it's on a red leaf, what does it do? It turns red. It's not pretending to turn red. It is in fact red. So a chameleon is completely authentic uh, to its uh, you know, DNA, to its nature. And what we know is that the people who have very rigidly fixed ideas about who they are often are constrained in their ability to move into new opportunities, into different situations. But if you feel that, wow, there's a lot of different aspects to my personality. And if I can draw on those different aspects, then I can figure out which parts of my personality are best suited to this particular situation and getting this particular thing. Well, maybe I can be a little bit more fluid right. in my behavior. And as a result, have a, a lot of really interesting experiences with a lot of very interesting people rather than being rigidly fixed and have only one way of being. It's as though people who are more effective um, can be authentic, but also adapt to what is needed in the moment. That's right. Right. So it's this balance. You know, I think that you have real spontaneity when when you have prepared as much as you can possibly prepare and you have the ability to improvise in the moment. The combination of, of pre preparedness and improvisation is what produces spontaneity. What I think people wish was the case was that they didn't have to prepare at all, and winging it is what actually produces spontaneity. But it's not usually the case. Usually winging it just means you're not prepared and you're making it up as you go. And you're just crossing your fingers, hoping that you'll quote unquote rise to the occasion.
And rarely do we rise to the occasion. In fact, what we actually do is fall back on our training. Mm. And if we have not trained, if we're not prepared for whatever it is we are trying to do, why do we expect we're going to be able to perform in a way that is better than we've ever done before? It's unrealistic. And so sometimes people will come off stage and, and they'll feel like, oh my God, that was incredible. I was incredible. I don't remember anything. I don't know what I did, but man, I felt on. And the audience has an entirely different experience. <laughs> but if you are prepared, then you know what you are planning on doing. And then if you do what you planned on doing, then you can feel very good about the work you did. Mm. As long as what you planned on doing is in fact going to be effective. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's gonna wanna take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. This is fascinating. We could probably talk about this one subject a long time, and I would probably get a lot of free consulting advice that I will not pursue in this call today, although I'm already feeling like I'm getting a little bit of it. I want to I make sure that we have a uh, ample opportunity to talk about the business itself uh, for you as well. But um, so I think the idea of teaching public speaking is thrilling. I wonder about the business of selling public speaking uh, is, is quite as thrilling uh, necessarily. So can we go back in time? Um, I, I, I know that this was not plan A. And as you said, it was not even plan B, C or D necessarily. So 
when you were a youngster at Tulane University before even uh, your your master's was a a, a possibility at, in New York, what was what was plan A going as far back in time as you can remember? So I thought I was going to go into psychology. Both my parents are therapists, which probably tells you something. My father is a psychiatrist <laughs> and my mother is a child development specialist. So I was always very psychologically minded. I was very interested in how people think and how they interact and what they're actually motivated by. Because often, you know, we don't even know what's driving us. And so we make choices that are not always in our best interest. So I was very fascinated with that. But I, I was not academic. I wasn't particularly keen on probability and statistics. And I, in college, had to take uh, an art credit. So I took an intro to acting class. And I loved it. But I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do with this? This is just, you know, this is just silly. <laughs> it was a throwaway but, class to you yeah, in some ways. Interesting, class. but yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, I figured I'll just take this, have some fun, and uh, <laughs> then move on. But then the the teacher said, listen, why don't you go on and take the acting one? Just one more class. You know, I mean, what's it going to do, kill you? You know, I think I think you have some talent and you might enjoy it. And by the way, uh, we're doing The Grapes of Wrath as the next play. And it's a 50-person cast and it's it's it has equity actors in it in the 1,500-person theater here at Tulane because sometimes they do shows with equity actors from the community. And uh, I think you should audition because, frankly... You look like a man, you know, an adult. I looked 30 when I was 15. It was bizarre. But you see, you look like, you look much older than you are. And, you know, really, there's no other guys in the theater department who could play somebody who's 30 years old. So why don't you go and audition for Tom Joad? I said, okay, that'll be fun. I mean, I'm not going to get it, but I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> right. So I think you know where this is going. So I get the role. And I absolutely loved it. And my, my parents came and my father took me aside afterwards and he said, listen, Michael, I know you've been studying psychology. And of course, I'm very proud that you're you know, following in my footsteps. But given your personality, given how you think, how you behave, how you see the world, I think you will learn more about people studying acting than you will studying psychology from an academic perspective. So I think you should do more of this. I said, well, okay. If you, okay, that's really interesting. Let me think about it. Now, that is atypical. In, in my experience, most people are not strongly encouraged by their parents to go into acting, unless maybe, you know, Will Smith is your father. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I had an academic father and he said, I think you should go into acting. So I said, okay. And I started taking more classes. I switched my major over to it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go out and do this professionally, I want to get some serious training. I just want to, you know, act for a year and then go end up on soap operas or something. I, I want to really learn craft. So I applied to NYU for the uh, grad acting program and to Yale for their uh, grad acting program. Uh, I didn't get into Yale. I got into NYU. So I went to NYU and I absolutely loved it. It was absolutely fantastic. Now, I still did end up on soap operas. Let's be clear about that. Uh, but I did have craft uh, <laughs> that I could employ uh, when I was using, uh, when I was on those soap operas. And my wife, Amy, 
got into both NYU grad and Yale. And so she went to Yale. And so we never, we didn't actually know each other. We were there at the same time. And those two schools are sort of the two top schools in the country. So there's uh, overlap, but we didn't meet until many years later. That's a fascinating thing. And I want to go back to your dad just a minute. Um, I feel like one of the, one of a few common threads that I find in people who become founders and didn't necessarily have that as plan A is that they did come from an environment that was particularly encouraging, um, where they were allowed, even at a very young age, to explore things that were interesting to them, not just interesting to their parents or not just convenient for their parents. And I don't think it's an accident that many people ultimately do their own thing because those seeds were sown at an early age, which, again, we could probably talk about that for a long time. But, but what I really wanted to point out was it wasn't just that your dad encouraged you. It sounds like his observation was particularly keen about how you might become a master in why people do what they do, or at least how they do what they do, and why it's important to them and how it can have an impact on others all of which I think are elements of psychology. It's interesting the observation he had about the approach you could take to it. And you could argue in many ways, that is what you're doing now, is employing psychology in order for people to connect with one another. But it's not lost to me that you're not just what your dad did, which is encourage you, it's the manner in which he did it. Yeah, that's actually very observant yourself. Uh, It's not something that I have actually spent much time thinking about. I, I was always, you know, been very appreciative of his support. Uh, but I've, I guess I've probably taken for granted uh, how observant uh, my parents are. Uh, that That's what they do professionally. Mm. Uh, so it's just the environment that I grew up. Yep. You know, they were always in tune with who who my sister and I actually were and are, and uh, and then tried to adjust their support of us to to reflect us and and who we are, not just their uh, personalities or their right. uh, desires. So uh, yeah, that's exactly what he did, and I think you're right. Uh, I, I had a very I didn't I did not have any business experience training. My parents were not. I mean, my father is a is a psychiatrist. And he has his practice, but he's not an entrepreneur. I mean, I, I've been trying to get him to hire a bookkeeper for the last you know. <laughs> 30 years. And, uh, he says, no, 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 they're not going to do it properly. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so he's not an entrepreneur, uh, at all, but, uh, his father was, uh, and, uh, I'm probably a little bit more like his dad. What did his father do? He owned a sleepaway camp. Well, he was a rabbi. He was a lawyer. He was a sign painter. Uh, he made, uh, I mean, like, you know, in those days, you, you, you did everything, whatever, sure, yeah. what, you know, he, he came here when he was just a little kid, um, uh, from Eastern Europe and, you know, followed in the footsteps of every man in the family and became a rabbi. And then he had a synagogue, but it didn't do very well. So he went into law, which, you know, but eventually what he did, which turned out really, really well is he started a sleepaway camp called Camp Monroe in Monroe, New York. And, uh, it was a very successful camp, uh, that was uh, recently, I think it recently just closed down, but it was around, uh, it's been around, you know, for I think 50 uh, plus years, 60 years. That's fascinating. That, yeah. that is fascinating. So there, there were some pieces of the entrepreneur, uh, the, the entrepreneur's spirit within you, yeah, it sounds I mean, like. I think yeah. the, the risk taking yeah. was there, yeah. you know? 
I think that that was that's natural for me. Although my dad doesn't have it at all. <laughs> well, so it's in the DNA. It doesn't necessarily mean it came straight from the parents, I suppose, <laughs> directly from that the next generation up. But yeah. all right. So you finish up at NYU after a few years there and, and you go into the acting world. You are mm-hmm. you're going to become a professional actor. Did you yep. even know what that meant? Like you you're finishing school. What does day one look like in that first job? I just, thought, I just thought it meant that I would leave grad school and just have a career like Alec Baldwin. I mean, just like this. Like <laughs> why not? Cool. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we you know, when you go, it's like sort of if you go to Harvard Business School, you kind of think that, oh, you know, the the world, the sun revolves around yeah. the streets you know, are paved right as you walk out, right? Every every street is paved, right? Yeah. Exactly. And you know, look, I I came out of grad school with a great agent. Uh, I was auditioning for, you know, all the, you know, big projects that were, you know, uh, uh, available at the time. And I had a modicum of success. And, you know, I did guest starring spots on most of the TV shows that were shot in New York in the 90s, uh, Sex in the City, Third Watch, you know, uh, All My Children. Law and Order. Um, Law and Order, yep. Another World. Uh, and then I did some films, little, little roles in films like The Pelican Brief and Down to Earth and Last Call, The Believer. Uh, I did a lot of voiceovers. And that was my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And then I did a fair number of on-camera commercials too for Budweiser. And if you're, you, you and I are probably close in age. I think I might be older than you, I don't know. but, uh, but you do have a little gray on your, there's on your, a little, there's a little, yeah, a little there, but you, you may remember, uh, in the nineties, uh, hearing the AT&T tag, uh, went something like this called 1-800-ATT. So that was me. Uh, then I used to do at Pizza Hut. We've got so many pizzas. You can do something different every day. So many pizzas, one great deal. Uh, you know, I did MTV's Rock and Jock Super Bowl. Oh, you know, and then I did the Box Music Network. All music, all the time. So I'm doing this now so you can call them up and say, listen, you owe me sponsorship dollars because we just did. No, but that was my bread and butter. And frankly, I didn't love doing it. You spend the day in a box in, you know, in a, in a recording, a sound uh, studio, in a box saying the same thing over and over and over again. Not what you pictured, not what you not envisioned. At all, not at all what I pictured. Uh, even, even working on these TV shows, I didn't find very interesting. You know, going in and doing a guest spot on Sex in the City sounded really cool and everybody, you know, get excited about it. But, you know, it was really easy. It's not hard work. Uh, meaning, I, I, look, I like hard work, but I like, I like, you know, really um, digging deep and sort of struggling to, uh, uh, to uncover ideas that uh, I didn't, I'd never had before, or to find solutions to problems that didn't exist. And a lot of the TV was simple. And, uh, and so I just found it a little bit boring. And really, you spend most of your time in a trailer, Mm. waiting for everything to be set up. And then you go and you do a couple of takes. They say, thank you so much. You go back to your trailer for four hours. They make the next setup. And boom, 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 boom. So, you know, for some people, they just love being on set. They just love the whole environment. For me, I always wanted to be doing something. Is you this know, like an then, existential crisis? I mean, were you starting to come to grips with, wait, this is what yeah. I chose to do. And it's not what I had in mind. I was. The existential crisis really came from the rejection. Because, you know, if you, it's one thing to get all the additions. Uh, it's another thing to not get the parts. 
Yeah. And I, I just didn't understand it. I thought, I don't understand. Why don't I just get all the parts that I auditioned for? Right. I was young and immature and uh, probably uh, driven by ego and the need for approval. Mm. And that's not a healthy uh, setup for the pursuit of anything important. And this is something that we work with our on our students a lot. This difference between the desire... Uh, for approval and results. They're two very different mm. drivers. And if you are, if you're working to get an audience's approval, if that's your primary objective, you now people may be thinking, oh, no, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. It may be very subconscious, but if you're driving for approval, then you tend to focus on things that disconnect you from the audience. Mm -hmm. So very early on in the conversation, you mentioned that you're an introvert and you would get nervous, uh, you know, on stage in the, you know, in the early days. And, and I've heard that before. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm introverted, so I'm not a performer. Uh, and what we find actually is that the introvert extrovert often is a false uh, comparison or analysis because some of the most extraordinary performers in the world are very introverted people. In fact, I'm very, very introverted. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm the most extraordinary performer in the world, but I, groups exhaust me. Uh, I, 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 after I do an event the next day, I don't want to see anyone decompress. Yep. Decompress. And uh, so groups don't energize me. And, uh, and I like being alone often. So, and, and so many of the professional uh, actors that, that I came up with who are winning awards uh, left and right now were even more introverted. Mm. So we also have people who are very, very extroverted who will come to train and have tremendous stage fright. So it's not necessarily, I think we, we just, because of the way that we think about introversion and extroversion, Culturally, we sometimes assign uh, shyness to to an introvert mm. personality and then gregariousness to an extrovert personality. But I've met a lot of people who are quite extroverted and actually don't talk that much. They just really like being around a lot of people. Right. They get right. energy from It's about the environment they prefer exactly. to be in or what brings out the, the best in them, you might exactly. say. But what happens when you are focused on the need for approval, you know, uh, well, I want people to tell me that my speech was great, or I want them to tell me I was really smart, uh, or I, 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 uh, I want a lot of applause or standing ovation. I want to make sure that everyone thinks I look good and that I'm well-dressed and that I'm fit, etc. Well, you, th those, those desires, those objectives have no value for the audience. They, they don't serve the audience in any way. They're all about what you as the performer want from them. And so if you are making decisions consciously or, or, or unconsciously that are based on your desire for approval, you may not actually be in the best service of the audience. And what happens is you tend to get more anxious as a result because now you're thinking about yourself and how people think about you as opposed to 
focusing on how you can be helpful. Mm. One of our clients called me up one day and said, listen, Michael, I just got on Good Morning America. I've got, I'm, I'm booked tomorrow. I've been trying to get this for months. It's going to be incredible for my new book. I'm so excited. What can I do to be good? I said, you can't. She said, what? I'm not good. I said, no, of course. That's not what I'm saying. You know that. What I'm saying is you can't go in there trying to be good. Yeah. But if you go in there trying to be helpful and solve the problems that people have, then they will likely say, oh, that was good. And then it takes pressure off of you because you're very comfortable helping other people, aren't you? Yeah. And she said, yeah, that's my, what I do best in the world. I said, do you know how to help them around this issue? She goes, of course, I wrote a book on it. I said, great, that's what you do. It's not going to be complicated. And the whole experience became so much easier for her as a result because she wasn't focused on trying to be good and get approval from uh, the viewers at home. Right. She switched from an inward thinking mindset to more of an outward thinking. It's, it's, it's not about me. It's about what an attendee, a participant, a single person yeah. gets from my participation as well. Yeah, look, right? and as and you know, if we're just if we're talking about speaking for a second, speakers are really not special. Meaning, if we're hired, you know, for especially for professional speakers, we're just we're vendors. We're probably very overpaid vendors. Uh, so if we understand what our role is, then we know the role is is it's not about us. It's about what what are we facilitating for this for this group of people, and that's our job. So if we if we know that that's our job. We can go in and do that job like any other job, then then you know it's uh, it's actually a much more enjoyable experience, right? Because you'll never get it if there's look if there's something missing in your heart, there is not enough approval in the world to fill that hole. And I can speak from experience because I, I didn't become an actor because I didn't want approval. Let's be clear about that. I absolutely wanted to be somebody that when you know. When you'd walk down the street, people would come up and say, oh, can I have your autograph? Oh, my God, you're incredible. Absolutely. I think when I was younger, that was a driver. I wouldn't have admitted it then, but I know it. Uh, and over time, that has become much, much less important. And in fact, I want to say one thing that, <laughs> that demonstrated how ridiculous fame is. When I, the very first film I ever got was The Pelican Brief. And I had one line in that. Actually, I was supposed to have more, but then they gave my lines to Cynthia Nixon, who was playing <laughs> Julia Roberts' best friend. But we won't go into that. So, but what happened is uh, I got it out of Tulane. I was a Tulane student and I graduated and they were shooting the Pelican Brief that summer. So Alan J. Pakula, the director, when he met me, I was sent in for an audition. This was before I went to grad school. He said, listen, I think you're great. Uh, you're like a young uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, which he's just saying to be nice because, you know, every young actor would love to be told sure. that. So hang around. I don't know what I'm going to do with you, but hang around. I'm going to find something for you. So I said, great. So he found something for me. And then the first day that I was on set, uh, the the costume uh, designer and her assistant were standing on the stairs that led up to the honey wagon that I had. Now, the honey wagon is a long truck that has lots of little tiny uh, dressing rooms for the day players, the, the, which is, it's like the equivalent of the big trailer for the star. Right. It's just this tiny little thing. You have your small compartment. Exactly. So I, and so they were standing on the steps and I came out and was standing on the steps with them. And there was massive crowds behind barricades because they all wanted to see Julia Roberts. Well, two women broke through the barricades and came running up to me and said, Oh my God. Oh my God. We know you. We know you. Can we have your autograph? Can we have your autograph? And I was, uh, uh, 
confused and a little bit overwhelmed. And I said, I, oh, okay, here. And I signed a piece of paper that they had. Now, I was, I was very confused by this until about two hours later, I realized why they knew me. They were both librarians at Tulane. They had recognized me because they had obviously <laughs> seen me in the library at some point in the previous four years, but they did not connect that. They thought that I must be a star because I was standing on set with the costume designers, right. which demonstrated to me the absurdity of fame. And uh, uh, yeah, I've, there's, you know, the, I mean, there's some great things that come from fame, certainly money and uh, restaurant reservations, and you can go anywhere wearing anything without having shaved. But outside <laughs> of that, uh, <laughs> there's not too much value in it. All right. So you're disillusioned with acting. And when, so the wheels are clearly turning in your mind, I, I assume that I need to do something new. When did you put that into, the mo into motion as an actor and decide, I need to pivot? And while I may do some acting on the side or, or, um, no, I knew for I fun. wasn't going to do it on the side because you can't, can't do it on site, huh? Not, not in the, not in the way that I was doing it or wanted to do it. Yeah. I, mean, I could do regional theater or something like that, sure. maybe on the side, but not at a high level. Right. You know, I could sort of do, I probably even couldn't do regional theater, probably local community theater you can do on the side. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you could certainly just do voiceovers if you wanted, but you got to audition whenever the auditions are there. You got to work whenever. So it's, it's difficult to have multiple careers at the same time mm. uh, in that space. And it's also very competitive. So I knew that if I was getting out, it was out. It and, wasn't, I wasn't going to be dabbling in it. And what sucked and, you, what sucked you into a new career? What was the next career? Well, uh, the next career uh, was in the fitness industry. Now I wasn't a trainer. I talked my way into a job on the business side for which I was completely unqualified for. <laughs> and I told them, I said, listen, and I got the interview because somebody knew me who said, look, I'll put you forward for this, even though you're completely unqualified, but let's just see what happens. <laughs> I said, thank you. So I said, listen, I have no qualifications uh, that I don't have the qualifications you think you need. I don't have the experience that you think you need, uh, but let me tell you why I think you should hire me. And my made my pitch to them. I said, listen, I think you're hiring the wrong people for this position. And here's why. Now, of course, what am I going to lose? I don't have the job. I can't follow the normal procedure of a typical interview because I don't have anything that they would typically talk about. So I had to take some chances. I had to, you know, raise the stakes. Right. And I did it with as much charm and respect, you know, and grace as I could. And I said, the people you're hiring for these positions uh, are incredible people. They're the best fitness professionals in the industry and you're putting them into management positions. But are they really managers? So do they think strategically? Let me ask you a question. Is payroll on time every single month? They'd say no. Because I knew this. I taught one spinning class at the at the club. And it was a big, big, it was a big, uh, um, th there were uh, locations all over the country for this uh, club. And I said, uh, what about uh, new hiring uh, processes? Are they always adhered to appropriately? No. So I went through this whole list. I said, so why? It, why is that? It's because they're not managers. And here's why I am. And here's why you should give me a shot. So they gave me a shot. And, uh, and then uh, six months later, I was running the whole division. Uh, and then... Uh, I think a year and a half, a year later after that, uh, I went, I was brought in to build a whole uh, club, a $40 million club. 
And I did that for a year and a half. And then I went and worked for the husband of the woman who was building that club in back in entertainment. Uh, he had a vertically integrated film production mm -hmm. and uh, distribution company. Spent a year there. And uh, then I went out on my own. And uh, that, yeah. I think when you say you went on your, on your own, I research tells me that was in the ballpark of 2003 yeah, in that range. Exactly right. Well done. Okay. Yeah. So, so 2003, what, what, what was it that told you this is behind me and this is my future? Where, what did, was it a crossroads moment? Yeah, was it was, something it was you had exposure to? Was, I walked into that last job and I thought it was going to be the coolest experience in the world because there's this new cool entertainment company. The, the founder was a former partner at Goldman Sachs. So it was very well funded. He had, he had brought in the top names in indie uh, film uh, entertainment uh, and so they had really smart people, sort of like, mm -hmm. probably like what it would be like to go into Google in the early days, but for the film industry. Right. But the day that I walked in, I realized, holy cow, this is nothing like what it seemed like during the interview process. Everyone <laughs> is miserable. <laughs> the guy who's running this place tells people they're stupid. You know, like it uh. just, it was a complete, uh, uh, alternative reality. Mm. And so at that moment I said, okay, well, what am I going to do? I said, I have no idea, but I got to find something. So I spent the next nine months trying to figure out what my next step was. And, uh, then I eventually left. I didn't really know what the future looked like. I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll become a coach, you know, I'll, I'll help people. Uh, but think about this for a second. What the hell did I know? And what the heck was I going to coach people around? Right. I mean, really, the, the, the gall, you know, and I think sometimes to do big things in the world, you got to have a little bit uh, of, of gall, you know, you, you, this idea that you can provide value for people in extraordinary ways, even if you don't yet know how you're going to do it is a hallmark of many entrepreneurs. Now, some people can't deliver and it doesn't work out, but other people can. And, uh, I learned pretty quickly that I needed to get really, really focused and understand what makes somebody successful in that particular industry. Right. What's interesting about that, I've, I've never thought of it as gall. I've always thought about it as uh, having a different perspective of risk. <laughs> um, but when you, when you frame it as gall, the, the way, what I'm thinking of is how, you know, if you're, not, if you're going to start something new, a new company that sells a, a, a widget, a product, a service, a software, uh, or a, a service that's very very uh, life-changing like yours, you have to go into it with a certain strength of your core belief that you know something others mm -hmm. don't. They yeah. have not yet uncovered mm -hmm. or discovered or you have I an answer by, for that. Yeah, that's what I mean by gall. Because yes, for, for the person who is going into entrepreneurship, yes, having a high tolerance for risk is important. But when you think about it from the perspective of your ability to deliver... Mm. That's something else. And so it's one thing, you know, if you, you know, if you're an engineer and you're an expert engineer and you've been working as an engineer for 30 years, but then you want to go out and, you know, just do your own thing and how you do, you know, do contract work, but the exact same work that you've been doing for years prior, that doesn't require much gall. It just requires that you're willing to take on that risk. Right. Uh, but if you're doing something you've never done before, that really, it, it doesn't really exist out in the world. It, that that's, that, that's un, that's unusual. Right, right. Yeah. All right. So what did you do? What uh, Those first 
three to six months. You're living in New York, uh, not an inexpensive place to live. What did you do the first three to six months to make this happen as a new entrepreneur? So not much. That was my problem. I thought, well, <laughs> look, all, I just need to make a website and then tell people I'm doing this and then people are going to hire me. And it didn't really work uh, that way. Uh, so, uh, so that was a, a bit uh, disturbing because I lived in New York City. My apartment was $3,500 a month in 2003. And, uh, you know, I was renting. And I had, I think, $30,000 in savings. I mean, think about how fast you go through that in New yep. York. I mean, you walk right. out of your apartment, even before you get down the steps, you've already spent a hundred dollars. I don't know where it went. It's just gone. <laughs> so it's a very expensive place to live. But I actually decided, uh, at that six month point to move out of New York specifically for that reason. Cause hmm. I thought I can't, I can't, I can't have the stress, the financial stress right. that yep. exists yep. here and try to build this business. You got to reduce as much stress as you possibly can right. so that you have the time and the freedom. But I did pretty quickly realize that I needed to be laser-like focused on a very specific target market and identify very specific problems that they had and then cr uh, craft uh, offerings for them that solve those problems with very specific solutions. And so what I did was I went back to the fitness industry because I had spent a number of years there. I had a, a reputation there that was pretty strong. And and at first I didn't want to do it. And I think I see a lot of, I see a lot of uh, new freelancers do this. They say, I don't want to be in the career that I was in. I don't want to be in that industry. Right. So I'm just going to start over from scratch. Right. It's a very rebellious act. It's a very adolescent way of, of thinking. Instead, if we say, well, let me reconfigure what I have to turn it into what I want, mm. we generally are able to do it faster. So I said, well, I don't want to be in the role that I was in before in the, in the fitness industry. I don't want to be doing that thing, but the people in the industry are great because they're people, you know, people are people. Right. So what do I know about them uh, and uh, uh, as it relates to the issues that they face and how can I solve them? Do I have that ability? And I realized I did because the, the division of the company that I was running, uh, I had 500 freelancers uh, that reported to me. So I knew what made them successful and what got in their way. So I started going and speaking at um, uh, fitness conventions and writing for fitness publications. And I really, really focused on that. And then pretty quickly, I got booked solid uh, in that uh, target market. So I said, okay, well now I can take the same solutions that I'm bringing for the problems that they have to other vertical markets. So uh, other health and wellness uh, industries. And then at, when I did well there, then I started saying, let me go into financial, uh, uh, industries. So there's, uh, accountants, I put lawyers in that category too, uh, and, uh, financial professionals, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just started building from there, but it was pretty scary at first, I have to say. But it's interesting. You did gravitate towards what we would, what entrepreneurs today would say, you've gravitated towards a very specific niche. You found a specific audience that you felt like you could blend two skill sets, or at least a skill set and a knowledge base from, experience base from, and provide them with a very unique offering. Like you did see that sweet yeah, spot, whether I you did. thought of it that way or not, I don't know, yeah. but, no, but no, you at no, least I, did I, that. I, yeah, I absolutely did. Uh, because I realized that, you know, just the hoping and praying was not going to work <laughs> at all. Uh, plus, I also found that I was ended up doing life coaching, which wasn't really my thing. Uh, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable and I was getting the kind of people that really needed to be working with 
uh, a mental health professional as opposed mm. to somebody who was trying to improve some aspect uh, of their business or their life in a very uh, proactive or productive way. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, but I actually, I make it, I have a slightly different way of looking at target market and niche. Now it may just be semantics, but, uh, but it, it, it helped me at the time because I see target market as the group of people or businesses that you serve. And then I see the niche as your area of specialty. Because when I think about growing a service-based business, there's a couple different ways you can do it. One way is you pick a target market, a specific group of people or businesses that you serve, and then you bring them some intellectual property or solutions to particular problems that they have. Now, once you get booked solid with that particular target market, providing solutions for specific problems, you have a couple choices. You can either stay with that same target market and bring them additional services that they also need to solve other problems. And they will give you that opportunity to do that because they already trust you because you solved problems for them already. Right. Or you can say, well, no, I want to stay with the same problems and provide the same solutions. So now that I've done well with this group, I can then take the same solutions to the same problems to a different group that has the same problems and need the same solutions. Which is why if I'm focused first on fitness professionals, I can take the same solutions that I'm providing to them for the problems that they have over to nutritionists. Because they've got the same issue when it comes to booking themselves solid that the fitness professionals do. And then you could take the same IP with slight reconfiguration over to financial professionals, because what are they trying to do? They're trying to book themselves solid. They have many of the same problems uh, and the same, the same solutions are helpful to them as well. So you can do it either way. This is fascinating because when I read book yourself solid back in the day, I remember the exercises in the book um, fantastic book. And I know you've, you've since obviously updated it, um, probably several times actually, but mm -hmm. I remembered having a concept called the red velvet rope policy yeah. and it, yeah. and it, the way my interpretation of it years from years ago was that it was a way to, I, to connect with potential clients in a way where you understand not just who they are, but what behaviors are, uh, uh they're prone to, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, um, what problems you anticipate they're going to need, which while you didn't just refer to it as a velvet rope policy, it's, it seems like what you're saying right now is you applied that. Like you, you thought about well, what are these so, people going to need and how can I expand upon well, that after country, providing them one initial niche sort of solution. So I know, uh, yes. And let me, let me see if I can frame, reframe that a little bit for you because what I was just talking about uh, really applies uh, to actually what's the second chapter in Book Yourself Solid, which is understanding why people buy what you're selling. Mm. If you understand why they buy what you're selling, then you can provide solutions uh, that solve the specific problems that they have. Mm -hmm. So if you understand their needs and their desires, you have a very clear target market. Uh, you have a very specific uh, result that you help them produce. Uh, then you, you tend to do much better than somebody uh, who solves problems for everybody, yeah. everything in any way. But the red velvet rope policy is a little different. Okay. The red velvet rope policy is the first chapter of Book Yourself Solid because when you go out on your own, 
you don't go out on your own because you want to have a, a miserable time working with people that you don't enjoy. You go out on your own because you want to work with people that energize you and inspire you. Right. And most importantly, allow you to do your best work. Because what happens out in the world when you're doing your best work? Two things. Number one, people are talking about your best work, which is the best marketing in the world. And number two, you love almost every minute of the work you do. You're not going to love every minute of the work you do because you're always going to have to do something that you don't love. Right. For the most part, you really like working with the people you serve. So I thought you need a red velvet rope policy because if you work with dud clients, and when I say dud clients, there might not be anything wrong with those people, but they're just not right for you. Just like, you know, I'm, I'm perfect for my wife. At least I think I am. She tells me that. I know she's perfect for me, but I definitely would not be perfect for every other person. You know, we make a perfect match. So this idea that we, you know, can be all things to all people, I think is unrealistic and maybe even narcissistic. So I think that we should put a red velvet rope policy into place so we know exactly who we do our best work with and why. Mm -hmm. So we understand their value system mm -hmm. and all the aspects of their personality, meaning their ways of being so that we can line up to see if, okay, do their ways of being, do their value structure, does their personality fit well with us? And do we fit well with them? Because if the answer is no, you're going to have problems. And generally um, when you, when you contract with somebody, if there are problems in that dynamic, if that's not an ideal client, it usually ends badly. It usually blows up. Something goes wrong and it ends up uh, with some sort of conflict. But that doesn't usually happen when you're working with ideal clients. So that, I think, is a very, very important part of the Book Yourself Solid system. Right. And I know it can be confronting because people say, what do you mean? Say, Does that mean I'm saying no to people that want to pay me? And I say, yes, it does. And I know that sounds crazy at the beginning because you might say, well, Michael, now at this point, you can, you can say no to anybody you want. You know, if you're charging $50,000 a day, you can say no all day long. Right. So in the, in the beginning, man, I lived, listen, I lived in the in-law suite above the garage of my former brother-in-law out in the country because I couldn't afford to live in New York when I was starting my business. So I know all about not having two nickels to rub together. But if you are working with people that you do your best work with, you're going to build the business faster and more enjoyably. Because if you're with people with whom you don't enjoy working, are you really going to want to go out and get more clients? Seriously, think about it. Yeah. Are you going to do the hard work of promoting your business if the people you're working with drive you crazy. And the nature of the work that you do for them is not fulfilling or is not your best work, right? It's the Correct. worst of both worlds instead yes, of the best exactly. of both worlds, right? Exactly. Yeah. And look, I think it's an integrity thing too, because I think I'm, I would be out of integrity if I'm working with somebody with whom I don't do my best work. Now, people might say, yes, but even my 50% of my best work is better than anybody's. Oh, well, yeah, not <laughs> that's really. debatable, that's kinda, yeah. That's, sure. that's not true. So, uh, so I think that it's just fair to, it's only fair to people that you work with to make sure that they are actually ideal for you.
So it's funny that that that's your mentality because your past actually validates that that you believe that um, the the fact that your first realm of customers or clients was the fitness industry, the fit industry that you just came from, I feel like is proof of that. This is this is these were your people. This is an industry you know. You know understand their problems. You understand. Um, what's on their mind? You understand their values. You understand what now, their objectives are. All of that, right? Yeah. Well, the red velvet rope policy is, is that your ideal clients that you get because you have a red velvet rope policy. They're just a small subset of your target market mm. because you know there may be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of people in your target market, but they're not all ideal for you. So when we're looking at the people that are ideal for you, we're not looking at whether or not they have a fat wallet. You know, or, or, you know, we're not looking at how much credit they can put on their credit card. We're looking at, do we do our best work with this person? Are we going to be able to produce results with them and for them that are truly remarkable, that give them a 20 times return Mm -hmm. on their investment? Right. And are we going to like working with them? And we're going to like going overboard to serve them. And are they going to be easy to work with? All of those kinds of things. Not just whether somebody can pay or not, because I'm sure we've all worked with somebody that had you know, more money than they knew what to do with uh, and could pay all of our fees 10 times over, but we dreaded working with them. Right. Well, so I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that I had not planned on taking as much time as we're at right now. So I I don't want, I won't steal you too much longer, but I want to get back to your business because heroic public speaking represented to me as a guy who was familiar with book yourself solid and love that, uh, that sort of, um, cornerstone content, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, as a sure. that's what I associated with uh, Michael yeah. Port. Um, heroic public speaking is a great endeavor that you and your wife are now a part of and together. And you've been doing this now for uh, numerous years. Can you can you share with me in an overview sort of way how heroic public speaking as a business has evolved for you? Well, when I first started, it was just me piloting some one-day workshops. Because anytime I am considering a new initiative, I want to pilot it. I I don't want to just jump right into it and say, ah, this is what we're doing. Uh, And so I took almost a year. Is it to see if people have an appetite for it? Like you have a a hunch that a market might need this, but rather than go all in, it's still a viable way. It's like an MVP. It's a viable way of testing the waters. Absolutely. And also, do I want to do it? Mm. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, no, I think actually that's the bigger one. I mean, I knew that people pay for public speaking training. Right. That's not, that's, that's people sell that. So I knew there's some appetite out there. Of course, is there an appetite for the, for the, for the way that we teach it? That that's one question. Uh, And then number two, do I want to spend the next, you know, the the next part? Because I think this is the last part of my career before I retire. Now, who knows? I have no idea. Maybe I'll run for president in 10 years. Never. No, not happening. But, <laughs> uh, but I do. This is where I plan uh, to finish up before Amy and I head off to the boat and just, you know, spend nine months of the year on the boat. But uh, but I, I, I had to figure that out. And man, I tell you, I freaking loved it. It was the thing. My friends would come to me, you know, people that had known my work for years that were in the business and say, mm-hmm. look, book yourself solid is great. What you do there is great, mm-hmm. but holy cow, this is what you were born to do. Yeah. And I felt it like it, I don't have to think it's easy for me. Mm-hmm. I see things that when I, I don't even know exactly why, but I see things that make people's mouths drop open mm-hmm. because 
what I would do is I would just, I would, I, I would work with somebody on stage. There would be a massive transformation and people would be shocked. And I kept saying, I kept saying, isn't this how it works in all public speaking training? Like, isn't this, <laughs> isn't this what everybody does? And they say, no, no, they just tell you what to do with their hands or look people in the eye, you know, or, uh, don't put your hands in your pockets, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And this is a whole nother level. So, uh, so that it really encouraged me. And so, uh, then, uh, uh, Amy came in and started working with me. She was not my wife at the time. We worked together for a number of years before okay. we became a couple, but I knew her background, uh, with her training at Yale was the similar background that I had with my training at NYU. And, uh, and so I said, let me see if she can do it. And she was brilliant. So, uh, she came in with me and I said, Hey, you want some of the company? She said, of course. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the story continues after that. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. And we were doing online courses at the beginning mm-hmm. with one event a year. But one of the things I realized, and I think this is, this is probably relevant for, for most of your audience who does any kind of training. Yep. You know, the, the, it seems easy to to build online courses and sell online courses, uh, and it seems that that's the the way of the future, etc. But one of the things that I've discovered is this: we can design online programs that are learning programs. We can do that, and if people really commit to taking the time to work through videos and lessons mm-hmm. and assignments, they will learn in that process. But what we don't see coming out of online training is transformation. And what we do see is transformation when they're in the room. Because if we're working on somebody's ability to use their instrument, meaning their body, their voice, their mind, to express themselves and to connect with other human beings, the change happens when they're in the room with us. So we designed our programming to include multiple elements so that certain portions of our of the training can be done online that's learning. Mm-hmm. And then the doing happens here at HPSHQ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fortunate to figure that out pretty early in the process uh, and then design our programming, uh, you know, for that. And that's why we built this, you know, massive training center here. Right, right. It's interesting, too. It's not just multi-sensory, um, but it it allows people to learn in different ways, um, mm-hmm. experientially, sort of intellectually on their own. Um, but, but the program is also built in a way where it's, it's over time. Obviously, you're, it's a multi, multi-week program. And from my understanding, Heroic Public Speaking has multiple levels as well, yes. like an undergraduate yeah. level, a graduate level, mm-hmm. and so forth yeah. as well. Yep. Has just that like evolved over like time? Have you found that the, the, the offering itself needs to evolve um, to, to differentiate or to get at the transformational element? Yeah, so I'm not really worried about the differentiation concept hmm. because what we do, our, our training is so unique in the space uh, that we are already differentiated right from the start. When people see it, they see the difference. Right. But every single time we run a program, we have to improve it. Because if you do not, then it is, you're doing a disservice to your, your students. Every time you're looking for what works that we keep and what needs improvement. So, I, you know, it sometimes puts more work on my team because, right. you know, they say, well, you spent four months working on this thing. And I say, no, we're changing it because we realize that we need to do this. 
And then it's another four months of work, but that's the job. You cannot settle, say, well, we did it once. See, this is the other difference I think that we see between folks who see themselves as creative professionals and others who see themselves as producers or operators. Sometimes people will say, yeah, but Michael, I worked on that section of the speech for, for three hours. So I don't want to cut it. They say, so you want to, you want to use something that doesn't work. So you don't waste the time. But the creative artist knows that 90% of what they make will never see the light of day. Mm. And that your job is to iterate, iterate, iterate. And that's tough in books because you have to do a new edition every time. Right. But when it comes to courses, speeches, et cetera, you can keep iterating. You can keep improving so that if somebody comes back the next time you do it, they should, if they don't see something different, then I don't think you've done your job. Yeah. Well, you could argue that... Uh, Michelangelo's greatest sculptures were the work was not done in the, the lugging of the marble <laughs> to the location. It was the removing of pieces of that marble that were actually the art. That's where the, yes. that's where the craft came, right? And knowing exactly. how much so that you could exactly. get at ultimately the, the, end, the yeah. finished result. And, and look, mo mo much of a creative process is a hot mess until it's not. And then it works, but then you got to improve it. Yep. This is fantastic. Michael, um, First of all, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love this. I can talk about this all day. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm now officially excited to, to... No, I'm not excited. I'm not excited to hear that heroic public speaking has reached a pinnacle in such a way that you are able to retire to the boat because I think that, that a lot of people will be lesser off as a result. Oh, we're not close. We will not close. No, no. We've got a, we've got a partner named Mike Canino who's incredible. He keeps building the business with us and incredible team. And oh no, we're not going anywhere for a while. That's good. From online courses, private coaching, obviously the speaking, the training itself in person, the live events that come with that. Um, it's an extremely well-rounded offering and no doubt transformation is a piece of this. And, and I'm, I'm again, I'm so glad to not only get your personal story in here, or sorry, not, not get just the business story in here, but to get the personal story as well. And I'm, again, I'm so thankful for the time today. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. That was Michael Port, best-selling author of Book Yourself Solid and the successful entrepreneur behind Heroic Public Speaking, which he now runs with his wife, Amy. All right. A special thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee. Enjoy Europe, Preston founder of Milo and admin of the Milo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Abrar, for helping put this episode together. And of course, to the other members of the Podglomerate Network. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch me at Brandon Hull on Twitter, if you like, and feel free to drop your rating or review on whichever platform you prefer. We'll catch you next time on Freelance to Founder.